What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? This is Sports 360, and I'm your host, Jeff Fennell. Today, we're joined by Stephen Bach, Legal Affairs Manager for Federation Internationale de Volleyball in Lausanne, Switzerland. Steve is a St. John's man, having earned his undergraduate degree from St. John's University and his law degree and his Master's of Law from St. John's Law School. Steve joins us to talk about his work in international volleyball and his life in Switzerland. He also provides valuable pointers on how others can chart their own course in the sports world, both here and abroad. So get ready to take a trip with us to Lausanne, Switzerland, as we sit down with Steven Bach on Sports 360. Well, today on Sports 360, I am I am thrilled to have with me Stephen Bach. Steve is the legal affairs manager at FIVB, and he'll he'll tell us exactly what that is. But he's joining us today from Lausanne, Switzerland. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a good morning here in the future. Uh, I feel like uh, Juan Soto, you know, hitting a home run before my official debut. So uh, it's good <laughs> to be six hours ahead, and uh, the weather is, looks like it's going to be sunny today. So, Well, good. And, and we're having you from uh, uh, joining us today from, from Switzerland. And, Steve, you're the legal affairs manager, and I said from FIVB. Why don't you tell the audience exactly what that is? So the FIVB is it stands for the Fédération Internationale de Volleyball, which of course is the French name for the International Volleyball Federation. Um, in essence, the the best way to think of it is uh, there's this little thing called the World Cup going on that's organized by FIFA. Uh, FIFA is the gover- international governing body for soccer. FIVB is the international governing body for volleyball. Uh, so what that means, in essence, is we uh, we manage the sport internationally and govern it uh, through our member federations, which are national federations within each country. Uh, in the U.S., for instance, it's USA Volleyball. Uh, in Germany, it would be the German Volleyball Federation. Uh, and similar to other international sports federations like FIFA, for instance, or FIBA, uh, the Basketball Federation. Um, and so... Uh, in addition to our role as governing the sport of volleyball internationally, uh, we also are responsible for organizing the technical and administrative side of the Olympic uh, Games. So for the Olympic Games, volleyball has two disciplines, indoor volleyball and beach volleyball. We're responsible for setting up the eligibility criteria, examining the eligibility of the athletes that would potentially come in, as well as being responsible for setting up the field of play and the technical aspects of of the volleyball and beach volleyball events at the Olympic Games. Okay, all right, we got a lot to get a lot to get into uh, there, but you know, before we get started, I'd like to say something, Steve, and, and that is this. Um, you and I go back a little ways. Um, I've had the pleasure twice of um, having you as a as a student in my law school classes, right, at, from St. John's, um, first in the JD program and then in the LLM program because you earned your LLM in international and comparative sports law from St. John's. 
And I have to say from the outset, I'm, I'm really proud of you, brother, and happy for you for the success that you've had so far in your career. So I wanted to just make sure I say that publicly to you, man. I'm really proud and happy for you for what you've been able to accomplish so far. Well, thank you very much. And it's it's obviously been a pleasure to have you teach us twice in class. And um, I recently did a U.S. I taught a U.S. sports law class at a university here in Switzerland. And I was trying my best to channel my Jeff Fennell teaching skills <laughs> for the U.S. class. So I hopefully I did I did the justice. Man, I have a hard time channeling my Jeff Fennell, so I can imagine how difficult that was. <laughs> but that's all good. But Steve, um, you know, before we get into the work and, and everything else and your experience, which is all fascinating, um, I, you know, I I really would like to know a little bit about Switzerland, man. You know the the culture, the people, the climate. You know, um, you know the things you do for fun. You know what? Tell us a little bit about about the country, what it's like, and and how you're enjoying it so far. Sure. Uh, so there, I think there are two common threads that I hear when I tell people that I live in Switzerland. People in the states that I live in Switzerland. One is uh, is about the the jokes about neutrality. So Switzerland is famous mm-hmm. for being neutral. And the other thing is they're always asking me, wait, that's not Sweden, right? Um, so <laughs> there, there's kind of a, a mixture. Um, but Switzerland, in essence, uh, is it's a fascinating country. Um, it's located between France, Germany, and Italy. And really that kind of shapes the different areas of Switzerland. So there's a German part of Switzerland where the influence is more German and they speak German. There's the French part of Switzerland, which is basically around the area of Lake Geneva, including Geneva and Lausanne, where I live. Um, But there's also in the German part, for instance, there's more of Zurich and Basel, which are bigger cities. And then there's the Italian part, which is close to the Italian border, which the famous city there is Lugano. Um, And each of those cultures create an interesting mix for the country as a whole. So. For instance, in the German part, they're more beer drinkers and gatherers, whereas in the French part, it's more of a wine country. Um, and in the Italian part, you have also the, the wine side of it. Um, and I think, you know, America, for instance, is known for baseball, uh, hot dogs and apple pie. Uh, Switzerland's really known for skiing, cheese fondue and chocolate. Those are kind of the, the big cultural things so um it's it's really a winter sport country um they have a very good they have good soccer teams and things like that but they're more focused on winter sports and the winter olympics here is big um the world cup obviously is big as well there's a they've set up a giant fan zone here with a big screen set up for everybody to come down and watch near the lake um to give you an idea of kind of the landscape where switzerland's located in the alps so there's a beautiful mixture of, I'd say, grasslands, mountains, and then uh, lakes as well. I'll have to uh, send you a picture of the view from, from our office because we're right along the lake in Lake Geneva looking across to where France is. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I've been fortunate in, in, in recent in recent years to, you know, do some work internationally. And um, who knows, maybe I'll... 
I'll find my way over there, you know, um, and uh, I can do better than the picture. But until then, send me that picture. I look forward to getting it. Um, Now, Steve, you've been you've been in Switzerland now working for the Federation, what, two and a half years? Yeah, between two and a half and three years at this point. Okay. And so, you know, getting acclimated, how difficult or easy was that for you? Because you also, and and you might want to share this as well, I mean, prior to the position in Switzerland, you spent some time in Germany as well um, uh, doing work. Uh, But so tell us a little bit about both and, and, and specifically the acclimation process for you. Uh, U.S. to Switzerland? I'd say um, it's it differs from country to country that you go into. Um, for me, I was fortunate enough at a young age um, because my parents went and we lived in Germany for two separate one-year periods when I was growing up as well. So I was familiar with coming into a new culture. I think if you're coming from the States and you haven't really gone out and lived in another uh, in another country, uh, you can definitely experience some culture shock. And there's some differences here between uh, how things are done and how things are done in the States. Uh, for example, um, I just found out yesterday, so Switzerland played Brazil over the weekend in the World Cup and drew 1-1. And I found out that basically as we were walking home from, from where we were watching the game, uh, there were a bunch of horns honking which, okay, fine, good result for Switzerland. Everybody honks their horns, no big deal. What I found out was that in Switzerland, they allow for a basically a period of one hour after a game for you to honk your horn without getting a ticket because otherwise mm-hmm. you only can honk your horn in emergencies and you would get a ticket. Now, just imagine that law applied to New York, for instance. I mean, having lived there for 13 years, you can't walk down the street without the horns being honked. So it's, you know, there's little things like that. But then the the bigger adjustments, I think, for me are like the language. Um, Coming here, I don't speak French at all, really. Um, I can pass in a restaurant ordering. Um, I'm much more comfortable in German. But being in the French part, you have to speak French uh, Mm -hmm. occasionally. Um, luckily for me, being in Lausanne, uh, Lausanne is home to about, in the Lausanne area, there are about 50 international sports federations. Um, and that comes from the fact that the International Olympic Committee is also based in Lausanne. Mm-hmm. So basically, a lot of the international federations move to Lausanne to be close to the International Olympic Committee. And then the other reason also is because, like, why corporations in the U.S. sign up and, and put their headquarters in Delaware because of favorable laws related to association and a generous tax status in Switzerland is why they come into and, and locate in Switzerland. So because of that, there's actually quite a few uh, expats that are around here. So there's a lot of English being spoken in Lausanne. Uh, Geneva as well as a fairly international city, given that the United Nations are there. So that makes it easier to transition in. And luckily for me, uh, the, the office, we speak, I'd say, 90% of the time in English. And then the other lawyer who's there speaks French. So if there's any kind of big French issue that comes up, it's more so that he'll handle it rather than me. But it, it made the acclimation process a little bit easier. But I'd say that, you know, getting used to the little cultural norms is something that also can 
from a day to day can be a little jarring, like the the horn honking situation. <laughs> right. It's funny you talk about the the horn honking in New York. I, I, you know, there have been times I, I I walk across the street, and I never forget one time I'm walking across the street, and I'm in the crosswalk, and everything's good, and the driver honked his horn at me real loud. I mean, just leaned on it just to see me jump. And when I did, he, he started laughing. I mean, so that's, that's New York for you. Um, you know, they're just going to test out their horn just to do it. So, um, that's, so as far as the Federation, um, as we transition into talking a little bit more about your work, how many, um, how many uh, federations are part of, or, or international bodies are part of um, the FIVB? So I, I think this is, and this is one of the points to kind of explain how the international scheme works, which is a little bit different from the U.S. So you have at the top of things are the Olympics, okay? And everybody, all the international federations that are in the Olympics want to stay in the Olympics, obviously, and want to grow the sport through the Olympics. And then you have those international federations that are periodically in the Olympics and those that are trying to get into the Olympics. So the IOC runs the Olympic Games. They have ownership of the the rings, which is one of the most valuable brands in the world. Um, And they're responsible for negotiating the deals related to the Olympics. Now, with the IOC comes national or Olympic committees within each country. So you think about in the U.S., it's the United States Olympic Committee, but there's one in each basically major territory. Um, And so that's kind of the structure that goes through the Olympic Games. And then kind of side to the side of that is that the International Olympic Committee recognizes certain international federations as the governing body of the sport uh, worldwide. So... For us, it's volleyball. Uh, we're the governing sport for volleyball and beach volleyball. We're recognized for that. And as we've been, indoor volleyball has been in the Olympics since 1964. Beach volleyball has been in the Olympics since 1996. Uh, it's a fairly well-established sport. Uh, so we we have less of a concern about recognition as it relates to those sports because they're they're viewed kind of as traditional Olympic sports. And they're very popular Olympic sports as well. If you look at Rio, for instance, during the 2016 Olympics, we were lucky to have uh, the Olympics in Brazil, which is one of our big markets. And uh, basically the joke in Rio is that uh, volleyball is the number one sport in Brazil because football is a religion or soccer is a religion. So uh, so it, it's a very popular sport and Indoor and beach are both popular, and we were lucky in that we had the Copacabana Beach as kind of our iconic venue for the Rio Olympics, and it was very popular. I think 33% of the TV broadcast hours for the helicopters uh, were over our beach volleyball venue, mm-hmm. and our indoor volleyball TV viewing hours were somewhere around a billion because the for the women's gold medal because of uh, – the Chinese team participating in the the gold medal match. So you have that dynamic, and then you have, basically we have 222 national federations, which are our members. Uh, So we will, in about five months, I'll have to travel to Mexico for our Congress, 
and there you'll have uh, a meeting of all these 222 national federations. And those national federations are responsible for governing volleyball in their local territory. Steve, let me ask you, because that sounds very broad in terms of what, you know, what, what the federation does and what it's responsible for. Um, are the players viewed as amateurs that, you know, that are part of this governing structure, or is it a combination of amateur players and professional players? Or should we be looking at that in a different way? What, how, how do the players fit in here? What's their status? So the players are an interesting piece, and I think this is a big difference. If we want to talk about player development, this is a big difference between how things operate in Europe and how they operate in the States. In the States, you have basically the, the school and kind of pay-for-play system, at least in baseball and soccer, in other cases, or AAU, also in basketball, um, where players develop twofold kind of they play for their school their middle school high school and they play for their AAU team or their club team Um, and then if they're good enough they'll get a scholarship to play in college and then from there if they're good enough in college they'll go to the pros where they'll be subject to certain different restrictions in terms of how they develop over here it's more so the club teams so think of it like the Cleveland Cavaliers for instance having a youth team. So instead of having an AAU team, you have the Cleveland Cavaliers under 18 team. So basically, the the club develops players from an early age, and they can sign in very, very young as youth players, and they kind of work their way through the system where they are taken care of in an academy environment. Um, they may go to school separately, or depending upon how good they are, in some cases the academy may have a school itself, um, and they devote their time basically to, to becoming from an amateur player moving up to the professional level. Uh, so in terms of volleyball, we have professional and amateur volleyball players, um, but there's two sides of it. One is the revenue and commercial side of it, which is done mainly through the professional players. And the other side is through the grassroots and the development side where we're trying to create amateur players who then may develop into professional players. And then, of course, there's the other side, which is the people who are playing for fun, who are older, who are playing for fun and don't necessarily have any kind of ambition of becoming a professional player. Um, but they would qualify as amateurs. Now, I think the the premise of or thinking of international federations is uh, an amateur-based focused organization stems from two things. One is the the fact that until 1992, with the Dream Team, the IOC prohibited uh, am, uh, professional players from playing in the Olympic Games, and so it was always amateur players that were required to play. Um, and the second thing is that because of this additional um, aspect of trying to grow the sport internationally there's the professional side and there's the amateur component which is an important part of that development uh mantra that these international federations have and so there's a perception that they they kind of focus only on that but that's not really the case it's more so the international federation is responsible for trying to contribute to both uh but the leagues and things that are typically associated with professional sports 
are more governed because they're national in nature. They're more governed by the national federation. Of course, there are aspects that do overlap. And one thing, for instance, is like transfers, which we can talk about. I, I think that that'll be a separate yeah. kind of point. But that aspect uh, creates kind of a, a, a space where the International Federation has to come in and oversee and regulate how the system operates worldwide. Okay. I want to go back to, though, this this developmental aspect and using your Cleveland Cavaliers example, um, are there any limits, age limits um, that are in place for when a young person, and I don't know how young you go, but are there any age limits before a player can begin pretty much training to become a volleyball player in, in these academies? I mean, you know, how young can they be um, and, and before they're put into an environment like this? So for us, I think it varies from, from federation to federation in terms of what their uh, age limits and restrictions are for, for youth players. Uh, for us, we have underage competitions going under 18, under 19, uh, men and women respectively, um, under 21 and under 20, and then under 23. Uh, so for national team competitions, that's the kind of cutoff, the, the three different layers that we have before you get to the, the final senior national team. Uh, but for, for the club teams, it probably varies from, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction depending upon many, uh, aspects, but mainly probably the local child labor uh, laws and what they can and can't do. But if you look at soccer, for instance, um, I was just reading about a player from Arsenal, Jack Wilshire, who is leaving Arsenal after being with the senior team for 10 years. And he had been with the club for 17 years. He had played with the senior team for 10 years, starting at age 16. Uh, so I, I think, it, as I said, I think it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. We have certain restrictions related to international transfers for for underage athletes. Um, but in terms of when they can start competing and, and kind of how the levels are set, whether it's under 12, under 14, that's done on a on a national basis. And then from when they can sign a professional contract is also determined kind of on a national basis. Although, again, it depends on the international federations. FIFA, okay. for instance, has certain restrictions related to to players and when they can sign um, and how early they can sign, et cetera. Got it. So what are you responsible for day to day? Give us a, a, a taste of, you know, the things that you get involved in as part of your work for the Federation. Sure. So as, um, as in-house counsel for the international, for, for an international Federation, um, we're, a very big international federation in terms of both revenue and in terms of employees when you look at the entire Olympic movement, but still a relatively small office when thinking about the fact that we have 222 national federations that we're overseeing, et cetera. Um, so we have two in-house lawyers, uh, myself and my Swiss colleague, Jan, um, and we basically are how I would describe it is we're almost like a general practitioner for the federation. 
because anything that can kind of pop up may make its way to legal. So in my day, going through my day, I may have an issue where I have a doping problem that comes up and then I have to deal with the doping side of it. And then suddenly I can, while I'm trying to work on that, I can get a call and, oh, hey, we have our event going on and somebody's misusing our marks. Uh, what do we do? And then I have to, to kind of switch gears and go into, okay, IP mode. This is now I need to kind of figure out exactly how we're going to handle this marks issue. Oh, and, and by the way, um, we, we have a competition coming up in three weeks and somebody registered less players than they're supposed to. So then I have to switch into kind of the technical mode and know what the rules are for the registration of players and be able to provide advice for that. So it's, it's being a general practitioner and also being a service provider for each department. So my view is kind of like, uh, for for a general law firm, you have different clients. You're providing different services depending upon the client you have. For us, we have one client. It's the, the federation, but we have different sub-clients, I would say almost. Like the, each department can bring a different issue to us, and we have to treat them kind of as their own as, and provide a service for them and, and know that we're providing a service in a different area for depending upon which department is coming to us. So it's almost like you're treating each department as kind of a client. Uh, so from a, from a day to day standpoint, it, it makes the day very fascinating because you never kind of know exactly what the day is going to, to bring. Um, and you have to be ready to provide advice, um, on a, a very quick basis because you know, some some things can pop, pop up and there's a competition coming up, you know, within hours. And so you need to be able to provide a, a quick answer. And at the same time, there are other things that us as the legal department manage ourselves that don't involve the other departments. So in that sense, we then have to try and carve out time from, from providing services to the other departments to make sure that we're also getting our stuff done. For instance, we uh, we provide services to our players and clubs through a financial dispute system where basically if a player is not getting paid by his club, he can then file a claim before the FIVB and the FIVB will basically act as a decision maker, kind of first instance uh, review of a case involving a player in a club. Okay. It's interesting that you ended there because, I was, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is one of the things is is player rights um and what kind of issues may come up regarding players and are there organizations be it unions or other advocates on behalf of players that you have to deal with so um other than financial issues um and I want you to talk about that a little bit more um what type of issues on the player side uh, do you deal with and do you see? And are there such things as unions or other player advocates uh, in volleyball? Uh, so I'll take I'll take the second question first and then I'll kind of transition into the other. Um, in, in terms of collective action, there is some collective action. You have to understand that culturally, um, there's a difference between how Europe and the States operate in that sense. Um, unions have been pretty well accepted in the US and used as a as a way of collective bargaining with with between management and labor whereas here it's not the same kind of notion you do have 
Um, some international sports organizations, such as FIFPRO, for instance, in soccer, um, that try to act as a collective union. But you have to also realize that the, it's, it's very difficult, I think, for unions to operate uh, because of the international nature of both there's domestic issues and international issues. So it creates a little bit of a complication, I think, for exactly how far they can go. Because, sure, uh, some players could come to us collectively and try and negotiate something, but that only deals with limited competitions, whereas where they're really getting paid and where they're consistently providing services is in the net domestic leagues. Uh, so there's, there is some, and, and really where we see it more so is in beach volleyball, I'd say, because beach volleyball is set up more like uh, tennis or golf, where we have one-off events, a tour with one-off events, um, in which they receive prize money depending upon their performance. So we have our world tour um, where we have basically, I think this year we had 40-something stops on our world tour. And we do, we have it organized in such a way where we have one star versus five star, five star being the top level, high level events, one star being more developmental, um, regional events. And so you, you run into there, there's more of a direct relationship, I'd say, between the international federation who's acting as the organizer of the world tour and the players themselves. Whereas with the, with, with indoor, um, really the discussion relates to things like rest, um, and how compact the calendar is, um, and what kind of discussion we can have to facilitate, uh, the top players wanting to play in our events in terms of providing maybe additional prize money and things like that. Whereas their salary is made with their club team. Um, and in addition, I'd say also with the player side is, is, dealing with things that pop up such as financial disputes for clubs. Um, so it's, it's interesting because the two, the two sport, the two disciplines kind of act differently in that sense, because Mm -hmm. there's different, different issues that come into play based on the fact that sports are designed differently. Right. You know, I have had the opportunity to, to um, do some work with the world players association and, you know, and you mentioned FIFA Pro, um, and they're a big part of the World Players Association, and there are uh, other other organizations as well. And I know one of the things that the North American unions, players associations, have tried to bring to the table is a sense of how we operate, um, and you know, notions of player rights, not just financial, but also in terms of intellectual property and other things like that, and. It's it's really interesting because there are some challenges as as you mentioned, um, based on the structure of of the sport in some of these countries, some cultural differences and things of of that sort. Um, but let me ask you because you also mentioned some of the work you do in terms of anti doping. And first of all, tell us a little bit about that. And I and I want to get a sense of is that an issue in 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 volleyball and and you know to the extent that it is you know what's your level of involvement on that on that score uh so doping basically the the system 
in in Europe and in other places is anyone who's part of the Olympic movement is a signatory to the World Anti-Doping Code, of which the uh, of which WADA is the the main agency responsible for for dealing with the implementation of the World Anti-Doping Code and overseeing the doping regime of uh, worldwide. Uh, each international federation kind of has their own rules related to doping, but the World Anti-Doping Code is the baseline, basically, and there's not a lot of variance in some of the individual provisions of from the World Anti-Doping Code to the the individual international federations doping code. Basically, it's I wouldn't say it's a full copy and paste, but it's close. Let's put it that way. Um, and so... Uh, basically, my role in it is there's there's the testing side of it, and then there's what's called the results management side of it, which is in the event there's a positive test, how is that handled? Uh, so we have uh, somebody who handles the medical side of it and is responsible for the testing. And then in the event that there's a positive test, we have the results management side of which we have a disciplinary panel that's set up to handle doping disputes. And from that, I act basically as a legal advisor to the doping panel. So we will then, the the way the procedure works is there are two samples that are taken, an A sample and a B sample. If the A sample tests positive, then the athlete potentially has the right to come in and ask to have the B sample tested and to be present when the B sample is tested. It's their choice. They can do it or they can waive it if they want to. Um, and then from there, once there's a confirmation of a positive test, then we move forward into the hearing of the athlete. So in essence, the athlete will be provided with an opportunity to provide an explanation as to why the substance appeared in his sample. Um, and then and the opportunity to have a hearing with the disciplinary panel uh, where he can present evidence. In addition to the written evidence, he can present testimonial evidence, et cetera. Um, from there, then our our disciplinary panel will deliberate and make a decision. And really, my role as legal advisor is to provide them with advice based on the circumstances of the case, and also to kind of be able to provide them with an overview of what the jurisprudence is to try and fit the sanction into what makes sense depending upon the circumstances. Uh, now, in the event that the athlete, we issue a decision and the athlete is not happy with that decision, they can then appeal to what the Court of Arbitration for Sport, um, which has been mentioned mainly in the context of the Olympic Games, but also in the context of other major events. But it's basically an, an arbitral tribunal that was set up a long time ago through this organization called ICAS, which has various membership. Um, there's membership from the IOC, there's membership from international federations, there's athlete members as well, um, and they then set up a list of, of arbitrators who are well-respected internationally who will hear cases. Um, and they're now in the process of actually, I think, setting up a specific wing for, for doping. Um, so that's kind of the, the day-to-day and how the process would work. In terms of challenges related to doping, I mean, I think the the primary one is, you know, we had before the Rio Olympics the release of the McLaren report, which was this big report on uh, what they said was state-sponsored 
doping during the Sochi Olympics and actually in the lead up to the Sochi Olympics and specifically in the Sochi Olympics and beyond by the Russian government. Um, and so that led to a lot of challenges because the basically the McLaren, the first uh, edition of the McLaren report was released three weeks before the Rio Olympics. Um, and so what that meant was that after the McLaren report was released, it's like, okay, we have this report where there's these allegations that state ministers in Russia are facilitating a doping scandal and basically allowing um, athletes, figuring out a way to kind of game the system to allow athletes to take performance-enhancing drugs but not test positive. Or in some cases, like in Sochi, where they set up a scheme allegedly where they could swap the samples out so that way the lab that was testing them would uh, would basically receive a replacement sample that was clean from a, instead of the, the dirty sample. Um, so that created a lot of headaches because the question was, how do we move forward within the Olympic movement, considering it's three weeks before Rio, how are we going to move forward with this issue? Um, so what the IOC did was they basically created criteria um, to define eligibility for each of the Russian athletes. And then they gave it over to the International Federation to examine that criteria and determine the eligibility of each individual Russian athlete. Um, now, as volleyball is, as we said, we had two disciplines. We had 30 athletes. It was um, one of the bigger sports in terms of the number of athletes we had to deal with. Um, but, you know, in examining that criteria, it was all put together very, very quickly. Um, and it was the... The, I think the ramifications of the whole McLaren report and the Russian doping scandal are still kind of being worked out to this day. So there, there's there's kind of the, the, the smaller individual issues and then there's these bigger issues that go across um, the, the Olympic movement. Well, let me ask you this, though, Steve, as, as, a, as a player advocate myself, um, I'm interested in what type of representation do the players have when they come before before the FIVB? You know, because you just said the player can challenge, the player can be there for his B sample and all that type of thing. And I'm sure it, it will vary from player to player, but generally, are the players getting competent counsel as they go through this process? Um, I think it's a it's a mixed bag. To be honest, um, I think it depends on the athlete. It depends on um, how well paid the athlete is, because you, you have to remember also that it, you're you're talking about some of the top professional athletes who then can afford to have really good counsel and will bring counsel with them. Sure. Um, and then you have some smaller athletes who are maybe part-time players who played on one stop on a on a local tour and tested positive for something. So there's a there's a variance in terms of the type of athlete, which then leads to a variance in terms of the type of, of representation. Right. Okay. Um, it, usually they will also obtain assistance from their national federation, but again, that depends on the level of the national federation as well, can determine kind of the level of representation they get. Um, but to, to us... Um, and, and I think this is something that as as legal advisor to a disciplinary panel, we're conscious, we're very conscious of the impact 
of how doping can can really impact and negatively impact the career of an athlete. Um, so there is a balancing in terms of the consideration of uh, of dealing with the legal side of things and also understanding what this does because it prevents somebody from being able to to basically do their uh, perform their livelihood even if they're doing it part time for a, a substantial period of time. The thing is, is that the the doping code as it currently is, and the, the world anti-doping code as a whole, provides for very, I'd say, it's very strict um, in terms of the, the total sanction that you're looking at. Because if you test positive for a non-specified substance, you're talking about a steroid-based substance, you're looking at a four-year suspension. Um so it's it's a very, very strict code, and there's a very strict responsibility on the athlete to know what is going into their system. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, but there's a, a few questions I want to to close with, and, and that is, um, you know, on your journey, Steve, to, you know, working overseas, working in Switzerland, um, you know, there may be some young professionals or some students uh, listening who may aspire to do the same thing. Um, are there any suggestions that you would offer that either a student or a young professional could take with them and implement to try to accomplish what you've accomplished? And that is to, to land a job overseas, uh, whether it's in the legal profession or otherwise, but, you know, uh, particularly in the legal profession, uh, any any kind of advice that you would pass along? Yeah, um, I, I'd say there's there's kind of two things. One is, I mean, when when I decided to go into sports, it was after high school. I, I made a decision that I wanted to 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 be in sports and major in sports management. And so then I went to St. John's, did sports management with a business minor. And as while I was in at St. John's in one of my sports management classes where somebody said the the quickest way to the sports through uh, to the sports profession is through sports law um and so that kind of got me refocused on the idea of instead of going straight after school to try and find a job in sports maybe I should go into law school and then when I went into law school I had the mindset of um of really focusing on classes and developing skills because I think that's the important thing is to know to look at the profession you want to be in and find the skills that you need because skills are transferable between professions what that means is in essence you don't necessarily have to start off in, out, out in sports to be able to transition into sports if you have the skills that sports businesses are looking for um, so in terms of sports lawyer as a sports lawyer what I focused on were contract classes, uh, labor law classes, intellectual property classes, and dispute resolution were kind of classes, areas where I was like, all right, these are skills that you may need in sports. And obviously there are more or less that, that can go into sports. You know, there, there are, when you're talking about sports law and the law of basically, as you said, the law of, you've told me, is the law of, uh, the law applied to the business of sports. Um, is in essence what sports law is. So it's sports law itself is a bit of a misnomer. It's really the law applied to the business of sports. And so that can mean anything. 
But there are certain areas that are very consistent, I think, in sports law um, that sports entities are looking at and and would want somebody to have skills in. So I basically try to select my uh, my my uh, curriculum uh, based on those skills that I kind of saw were consistent uh, legal skills that that uh, that a sports organization may be looking for. Um, so, uh, and in this way, I think uh, I was listening to, I think it was Rex Gary came on and said something about how he kind of was, he was doing litigation um, and he kind of just, the the professionals started, basically sports started looking for professionals to handle arbitration cases and litigators and he kind of moved into the sports realm. Uh, I think now the, the the landscape has changed in that there's so many classes and things available and, and so many people that can be focused on sports that you really have to kind of plan out what you have in mind. Um, and then the other point I would say is that you need to have a certain flexibility. Um, for me, I grew up being a soccer fan, a uh, basketball fan, baseball, American football. I love all the American sports and soccer, um, but I grew up playing soccer. Uh, for me, volleyball was a sport that I played every now and then, and I knew the rules too, but I wasn't a huge fan. Um, but that doesn't mean that once you go into uh, the business and once you learn about a particular sport, you may find that you have an appreciation for it and you may enjoy watching the sport. And I now really enjoy watching volleyball, um, and I try and watch it on a very consistent basis. Uh, so it I'd say if you try and narrow in on a sport, and I think when I was doing the the LLM, my original focus was I want to work in the U.S. I want to work in the U.S. I want to work in the U.S. Right. right. Well, there's a bigger there's a bigger world out there, um, and the fact of the matter is also the the U.S. leagues are looking to sp- expand as well globally. the The world's gotten smaller. The internet has made things easier. I mean, we, you know, we were able to communicate back and forth over time zone. You know, right. gone are the days where you're you're logging into AOL and having to wait 30 minutes before you can connect, and then you can maybe message somebody abroad. Like, it's it's the circumstances are that communication has made and the internet has made things a lot easier for things to travel worldwide, and sports organizations know that, and they're trying to expand globally. You look at the the NFL, you know. Playing uh, playing games in London, regular season games in London, NBA investing in China, uh, Major League Baseball putting together the World Baseball Classic. Um, there's there's a conscious sh- uh, mindset within the the American leagues to look around the world, and I think similarly uh, there's a concept of the European strong European entities like Barcelona, Bayern Munich, big soccer clubs are looking to expand in the U.S. by doing off-season tours through the U.S. Or in the case of Bayern Munich, they've even opened a commercial office in New York. Uh, so globalization, in, as in all industries, is happening in the sports industry as well. Yeah, and so. I think in the future what you're going to see are lawyers who have an understanding of how things operate on both sides of the Atlantic will, will and, and even professionals, not just lawyers, but professionals who understand how things operate on both sides of the Atlantic can provide value to their uh, to their sports organizations because of this globalization. Right. I mean, that's excellent advice. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if the leagues 
are looking to expand and they have that, you know, the global mindset, I think those who want to be in the industry have to have the same outlook and it just expands opportunities as well. Right. Um, and we've talked about this in the past. I think that if someone wants to get into sports, they have to think broadly about what sports is and then where sports is delivered. And if you limit it to in, in the United States, football, basketball, baseball, and hockey, and you limit it to the continental United States, well, yeah, it's going to be limited. But if you go beyond that in terms of sports and location, then you expand your possibilities. So that's and I really think good the, advice. The, yeah, and I think and I think that like the, the important point you made there is that look, the, the US professional leagues, they have been operating in a very professional manner for a while. Um they have been commercially driven and and generating revenue and and acting like, you know, a business for a while. Um the international federations I think with the with the dream team coming over in 92 I think that kind of stall or kind of foresaw the idea of international federations need to start professionalizing and that process is still ongoing because yeah yeah sure for a big organization like FIFA or FIBA um they may be further along in that process but there are other international federations that are working in sport that will be part of the Olympic Games that may not be as far along on that development in terms of having professional staff. So there is an opportunity there uh, for, for 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 American trained uh, you know sports uh, professionals to come in and potentially uh, find their way into sports through the Olympic move. Okay, so Steve, um, what are some of your plans um short term long term uh do you see yourself staying overseas do you see yourself one day coming back to the states um yeah i mean so my view was i wanted to come over here and i wanted to get in-house experience um for me after i decided to go to law school i kind of targeted the the idea or one of the the jobs that i kind of was looking at was to be in-house counsel somewhere um, I think at the time I was in law school, it was kind of envisioned that it would be with one of the professional teams in the U.S. Um, but it's amazing how the experience you have can kind of change the path you're on. And that goes a little bit to the flexibility point that I, I mentioned uh, briefly. It's not only flexibility in terms of location and in terms of sport. It's also I think your mindset can change as you have more and more opportunities come along. Um, so for me, uh, short term, I mean, I, I see myself with the FIVB. I, I enjoy the work here. It's, it's, as I said, it's a very exciting and dynamic, uh, environment to work in. Uh, so, so for me, and, and I know with Tokyo 2020 coming up for us, the, the Olympic Games are, are the next big step. We also have our world championships coming up this year, which is basically the volleyball equivalent to the World Cup. So it's it's always awesome to be part of these these bigger competitions. In terms of long term, I mean, I, I foresee myself just I wanted to get the skills, um, and then to see based on getting those skills where the journey leads me after that. 
um, will kind of depend on what comes along. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'd rule out going back to the States. I wouldn't rule out, you know, staying in Europe. It all depends, I think, on, on where, you, what opportunities come up. You, you have a, an opportunity and, and it may, it may be something that, uh, that changes your thought process. But for me, I, I know I, I enjoy it here. I really enjoy, um, being in Switzerland and, and, and being at the International Volleyball Federation. It's, it's really, uh, uh, been a great ex- it's it's been a fascinating and, and wonderful experience i'd say yeah well i'm happy for you as i said at the top and i believe you're absolutely right i just want to emphasize again the point you made about it uh, you know obtaining skills um because as you said they're, they're transferable and it, it, it gives you opportunities now to assess you know uh other potential positions that may come up from time to time because you developed your skill set. So um, listen, man, it's really been great having you on. And listen, I don't know how how often you get back to the U.S., but, you know, when you do, I know you're going to have a lot of people to see, but, you know, just let me know when you're back and because it always will be good to, to, to see you and, and uh, sit down and, and chat with you some more because I really enjoyed our chat here today and i appreciate you taking the time to be with us of course it was my pleasure and and thank you for inviting me um and of course when i come back to the the u.s i'll i'll send you an email and we can uh get together and have and continue a chat for sure okay and don't forget to send me that picture you know i will send you that picture yeah send me the picture because I'm, i'm a visual guy once i see something i start visualizing it now i can start you know working to attain and i'm telling you i may come over there one day and knock on your office door and you'd be surprised because i'm over there doing some business uh of some sort so be sure to send me that picture oh i need to send that picture because it's going to be part of the get jeff finnell to switzerland campaign (laughs) you're not going to try you don't have to try that hard (laughs) Uh, i'm interested already so but Steve, thanks for coming again, man. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to stay in contact. Oh, definitely. And uh, I look forward to listening to the podcast because it's, it's definitely been a, a great listen uh, for, for, for my walks to work, for sure. It's definitely been illuminating. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. And I think it's really because of, um, you know, the great people we've had on, um, and, and, and that includes you. So thanks again for being with us. Well, thank you. All right. It was wonderful to catch up with Stephen Bach and to share in his experiences working on the international volleyball stage from Lausanne, Switzerland. You can tell Steve is excited about his work, and why shouldn't he be? He has charted a very promising course in his professional career, and his future looks bright. You know, right after the interview, he sent me that picture from his office. The view is gorgeous. I have to find a way to get over there for sure. But that's going to have to wait, because right now, a brother is going home with Scully leading the way. But listen, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and spread the word to your friends that Sports 360 is on the move. Until next time, be good. And we'll see you again on the next edition of Sports 360.